Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Right, so this is Acts chapter 6, verse 1 to 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching, of the preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full, of, full with the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In 2021, the National Church Life Survey, NCLS, uh, asked local churches across 20 denominations here in Australia what social services and social action programs they had provided in the last 12 months. And on the screen, you're going to see uh, at least part of the breakdown of their findings. The top two social services offered in this country by churches in their local communities are visiting programs uh, in prisons and hospitals, and emergency relief or material assistance. That constitutes 49% and 48% respectively. The survey also revealed that just under a quarter of churches say that they provide chaplaincy in prisons, hospitals, schools, SES and sport. That's a total of 24%. And counselling services such as marriage or parental counselling as well, and 23%. Less common but still reported, uh, one in 10 churches offer aged care services, migrant support activities, accommodation services, and political and social justice activities. That's around eight to 11%. Uh, And you can follow that list, it goes beyond that screen there. Uh, But they include things like, you know, looking after the unemployed, um, environmental action, childcare, preschools, so on and so forth. You know, when you look across the 2000 plus years of church history, Christians have made a name for themselves by their social action and their outreach, going right back to the establishment of the first hospital and the first university in Western civilization. But where does this concern come from? And what's the prioritization or the balance for us here as a local church who's involved in some of this stuff uh, to what we're doing here right now? Teaching and preaching the word and praying and singing and so on. We're going to explore some of this today in our text that was just read out from uh, Zim. I think Zim's gone. Um, There you go. Thanks, Zim. Uh, So, yeah, we're going to be exploring some of that in Acts chapter 6. If you want to turn there or swipe there, we'll be looking at that together. And this, this section of Scripture, it really marks, in one sense, an end, in another sense, a beginning, a new beginning. The sense of the end here we see in verse 7 with the mention of Jerusalem. 
this is essentially the end of the first movement in the book of Acts, when you look at the way this book is structured. You recall our series title as we're looking at this book of Acts is called To the End of the Earth. That comes straight out of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is really a summary, a geographical summary of the book. It reads, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. That's the movement, at least geographically speaking. And fun fact, the missional movement here is in broad contrast to what we see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the missional movement, it was centripetal in that it flowed um, towards the center of Jerusalem, towards temple worship in Israel, as people were called to be obedient to God's uh, glory there in the covenant community of the people of Israel. You can read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. But over this side, on the right side of the Bible here in the New Testament, the missional force is centrifugal in that God's people are sent out to the nations uh, to proclaim the gospel. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. So you see this difference from the Old Testament where it's a coming in to the, the New Testament where it's a going out. And we are very much going out here to the end of the earth. New Testament mission spins out from the center here of Jerusalem. Uh, to Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth, including Newcastle, New South Wales, 2023. You and I are participating in this movement, in this momentum. And in that sense, we're, we're kind of writing successive chapters of the book of Acts. May we never forget that we are a part of something bigger here. But today in chapter 6, we're considering that end section here, the end of this first movement again in Acts to Jerusalem. Because from here on, geographically speaking, we're walking beyond the city walls from Jerusalem to the regions of Judea and Samaria. So that's a sense of an end here. But there's also a new beginning. Uh, as the church is growing, there are growing pains that come what we might call uh, th- these growing pains, you know, you remember having them growing up, uh, you know, the discomfort of your own body. And then with that growing pains, as we're going to see here, there's some structural adjustments that come within the body, changing dynamics of church polity and organization that come in response to church growth. Uh, and, and the purpose of those structural adjustments then is to build up the body to be stronger than it was before. And that's essentially our outline here this afternoon. Number one, growing pains. Number two, structural adjustments. And number three, bodybuilding. I'm excited about this passage. Uh, I don't think it's coincidental timing. I think it's providential. I was reminded this week that we, uh, this week marks one year since we've had a refresh in our leadership team at Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. Over this year, we've had and experienced growing pains. Uh, We've gone through some significant structural adjustments. (laughs) But you know what? I think we've emerged as a church stronger than ever before. Our body has been built. And I pray that that would always be so, that we would never be able to say over the past year we haven't grown and we haven't strengthened uh, as a result. May we always be able to look back um, on our growth day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. Growing pains, structural adjustments, bodybuilding. Let's dive in. First, Growing pains, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. 
In these days when the disciples were increasing in number, straight away we're connected here with what's come before in the book of Acts, right? Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends. Acts 2, the Spirit descends and the church is born. And like all things that are born, the church begins to grow. Acts 2.47, the Lord added to their number. And as we've said before, with growth comes resistance. And that's what we encountered in Acts 3 and 4. Growing pains. You want to bulk up? You want to, you know, go lift weights with Dan Villan uh, early in the morning, 4.45 a.m. on a cold winter's day? You've you got to go put some heavy weights onto those itty-bitty muscles of yours. You've got to break down those fibers so that they can reform and rebuild and grow stronger and stronger than ever before. No pain, no gain. DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness. It's a real thing, trust me. And we've already seen it here in the context of the church in chapters 3 and 4 church doms the church was growing the apostles were doing many signs and wonders in the name of jesus and for that they were arrested by the jewish high priests with growth came external resistance right in 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 the context of three and four looking like persecution but it wasn't all external acts five we read about resistance this time from the inside and instead of persecution we're talking here about deception Remember Ananias and Sapphira, his wife. Hard to forget. They tried to deceive the church and were met with a direct and instant judgment miracle of God. Like the hard falls of a toddler trying to learn to walk, their death was a hard lesson for a young church this side of the cross in the, in the age of grace, right? Now, were, were Ananias and Sapphira saved? I think they probably were. The judgment came in the context of all the believers, Acts 4.32, and Acts 5.3 suggests that they perhaps knew the Holy Spirit. So I think Ananias and Sapphira, at least on my reading, is that they were um, examples of direct discipline. And at the risk of sounding a little bit academic here and, and you know, not showing much compassion to what is a, a shocking situation, the impact of their testimony bore a lot of fruit for the church. Acts 5.11, great fear came upon the whole church in a healthy sense, a healthy, holy fear that was necessary for setting the righteous and the holy tone and tempo of the early church in its nascent or its infant form in those early years. External persecution, internal deception. Then again in Acts 5, we we go back to external persecution. You see this yo-yo all throughout church history as the apostles were arrested again. But as Tony shared with us last week, uh, there was one Pharisee, Gamaliel, who stood up and sort of advocated on their behalf. And instead of getting executed, the apostles just put up with a bit of a beating and, uh, and another warning to not do it again. These are the days in which we now find ourselves as we walk into Acts chapter 6. And what we see through all of this is something of divine mathematics. We've got math teachers here, so I need to be careful. Acts 2, 47, the Lord added to the church. Acts 5, 1 to 11, the Lord subtracted from the church with Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 5, 14, more than ever, believers were added to the church. And today in Acts 6, 7, we're going to read about how the church was multiplied. Addition, subtraction, multiplication. It's the math of a maturing church. But think back to your schooling and the functions of arithmetic. What's missing here? 
Addition, subtraction, multiplication. Integration. Oh, we're not doing calculus, no. <laughs> division, division. <laughs> Let's keep this simple. The Lord adds to the body. The Lord subtracts from the body. He multiplies the body, but the Lord never divides the body. Mark 3.25, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. When external persecution, and when that comes, it tends to purify the church. Internal deception and, and dissension, it destroys the church. It dismembers the church, and a dismembered body is a dead body. It, it doesn't grow and flower, it, it rots and stinks. That's why the stakes are so high. And that's why there was such a swift and decisive action, certainly in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. And I think as we see here today in the case of Acts 6, swift and decisive action taken by the church leaders. So what's the issue? Well, we're introduced to it here in verse 1. There's a problem in the form of a complaint that smacks of division between two people groups. The Hellenists who arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Who are the Hellenists and the Hebrews? The Hellenists and the Hebrews represent two distinct groups of Jewish people. Remember in the Old Testament uh, how the kingdom of Israel, it was repeatedly overrun. The Jewish people were scattered into foreign lands. Well, the Hellenists refer to those Jews who were dispersed outside of the land of Israel. Uh, and over time, they, they just never came back. They were slowly assimilated into the Greek culture that dominated the period of time that Mick referenced before, the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testaments, which is about 400 years. That's when you know, Alexander the Great ripped through and had the largest known empire the world has ever seen. That was when Hellenization or Greekification or whatever you want to call it, the, the, the spread of Greek culture and language influenced people. These are the Hellenists. They are Greek-influenced Jewish people outside of the land. The Hebraic or Hebrew Jews, they are those who remained in the land and were therefore more plugged into their Jewish customs and practices. So, you know, unlike the, the Sunni-Shiite divide in Islam today that have significant theological, historical and political differences, the Hellenists and the Hebraic Jews were differentiated by matter of you know, geography and some relatively low-key social norms. Uh, this is not a doctrine, doctrinal division. It's a social division. And it's only really come about because in Acts chapter 6 because these Hellenic Jews are back in town for Passover. It's like this awkward Christmas dinner where Uncle Bill comes from across the other side of the world and you're like, yeah. You know, whether you're, whether you're a Hellenist though or a Hebraic, Something to note here is that all Jews held a sense of responsibility for the less fortunate. The poor, the widow, the marginalized of society. And the reason they did is explained in part because they believed their God to be a father to the fatherless and defender of widows. Psalm 68. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That's uh, what the infant church was involved in here. The church is growing. More people means more need. The poverty was increasing. And because the Hellenists were the ones from out of town, you know, they didn't have their home here, they didn't have their support networks, they didn't have their jobs, uh, they were in need. And so the apostles start taking collections, they start distributing those 
uh, collections out. We've already seen this in Acts 2, we've seen it in Acts 4, and we've seen it again here in Acts chapter 6. Only this time, a problem arises, right? People are complaining. Some people are missing out. There is friction between the social groups. Now, let's just take a time out here for a moment. I don't want you to miss what's been said here in verse 1. Two things at least. First, the church is growing. Second, because the church is growing, there are these complaints. Don't miss that. These complaints are symptomatic of church growth. Now, any church is going to have complaining and problems, right? Irrespective of whether or not they're growing. It's human nature. But you don't get problems like segregation here if you're not growing beyond you and your neighbour at church. I mean, if the church stayed as a house church there in that upper room and it never expanded into the streets of Jerusalem, let alone beyond the walls into Judea, Samaria, right to Rome and the ends of the earth, uh, it would never have had an issue like this of segregation between two people groups because they would never would have come into the fold, right? And there's an instructive point here, I think. The larger the church, the less its members will have in common, and that introduces problems. These are growing pains, friends. And I've called this time out here because I think this is a blind spot for many people in church today, and business, and big families even. It's the same principle. (laughs) There is such a thing as a size culture, and that profoundly affects how, at least in this case, a local church functions, how the church is organised, how decisions are made, how communication is had, how people get involved, how leadership should be structured. The late Tim Keller, I hate that I have to say that, I loved that man. The late Tim Keller once said, quote, the difference between how churches of a hundred and a thousand function may be much greater than the difference between a Presbyterian and a Baptist church of the same size. And I don't disagree. We often talk about our differences as churches by denominational divides or Protestant or Catholic. We don't typically talk about our differences in terms of size. But arguably, the size is bigger than some of those differences. And I think he was right. You know, when a church grows from 100 to 1,000, it isn't simply a bigger version of the same church. It undergoes a radical change. It must undergo a radical change. And I'm speaking to you now from my professional career. It is simply irresponsible and poor leadership and management to try and run a large corporation as though it's a small business. And it's the same when it comes to small and large churches. To make this point, let, me consider, uh, let us consider just a couple of examples. In a church of 100 people, it might be expected that a member can get in touch with the preacher or you know, for pastoral care like this church here. But when you grow to 1,000, it's simply unreasonable to expect that the pastor can just be grabbed on the phone at, at the drop of a hat because that level of pastoral personal care just can't be provided by one person to 1,000 people. So the larger the church the less available the main preacher is to do the pastoral work. And that will necessitate some structural changes, which we're going to talk about here in a moment. Well, think about the quality and aesthetic of ministries like church music. The difference between a church of, say, 200 and 2,000. The larger the church, I think, the higher the bar for professionalism and quality. Now, is this a vain thing? No. I mean, it it could be, but it could be for any church of any size, right? So in principle, no, I don't think this is a vain thing. 
And here's why. In smaller churches like ours here at Newcastle, for example, the worship experience, it's partly rooted in horizontal relationships that we have with one another. Most of you know those of us who lead worship up here. And we get a pass when we stuff up <laughs> or when the, the, the quality is a little bit lower because you know and appreciate and love the service that we're giving to you as we volunteer our time up here. But when it's a church of 2,000, where it's just not possible to know everyone, the music doesn't have as much of that horizontal relational capital in the bank. And therefore, it's more of just a vertical experience with you in the seat towards God. And when something over there on the stage, the music or the performance or whatever you want to call it, stuffs up, that can be a real distraction to you as you're trying to have that moment of worship. And because there's that lack of horizontal relational capital there with the musos, it can be hard to offset that with you know, a lack of giftedness. We could go on with, with different examples, but the point I think to say here is that we need to appreciate the impact of size culture on us here at church. And I think it's actually a really loving thing to try and think about this a little bit more because it sets a healthy expectation for you guys coming here and for the church leadership in what it is they're trying to achieve. Anyway, time out over. So here we are. <laughs> Complaint arises here in verse 1 as a symptom of church growth. And it's really interesting the way it's described here. The Greek word for complaint, or your translation might read grumbling or murmuring. It's, come on Mick, gongusmos, yeah. It's a funny sounding word, gongusmos. It's onomatopoeia actually. It's meant to sound like what it means, you know. We say boom to wake everyone up. Um, no, because that's what the word sounds like. Boom, bang, smack. It's an onomatopoeia, gongusmos. So how is this onomatopoeia? Well, it sounds like murmured grumbling. Have you heard gongusmos? John Coe, gongusmos? You know, it's just this grumbling below the breath. It's, it's complaining. By the way, it's not a constructive complaining. Uh, it's dissension. This is infighting. It's people siding up to their particular groups and cliques, taking long, hard looks at each other because, hey, the Hebrew Jews are getting preferential treatment and it's not fair. There is discontentment here. There is jealousy. There is pity pride, petty pride. This is the kind of stuff that literally saps the life out of a church. Jesus said that when we are perfectly one, we bear witness to the gospel, to the reality that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. A church divided doesn't stand out in the world. It just becomes another institution in the world. Imagine like a first century Jew looking at this situation. Well, hmm, they have their Hellenists and their Hebrews. Well, we have our Pharisees, Essenes, Sadducees and Zealots. You see what I'm saying? Disunity, it doesn't stand out. Social atomization is the norm in a world that has no social cohesion. Let's be like our maker, who is unity and diversity in the community of the Trinity. You know, when I was studying at Bible college, I came out with my knife sharpened, ready for heresy, ready for the cults. Biblical aberrations of one kind or another. Now, in one sense, it's kind of easy to deal with, with heresy and false beliefs in a church community because those problems are typically black and white on paper. But it's just not the case when it comes to social issues, pastoral issues like complaining, conflict amongst 
members of a church. These issues are grey. And coming out of Bible college, speaking you know, for myself and I think probably many others, I was just not prepared to deal with some of this stuff. For dealing with undercurrents of jealousy, even my own, right? Bitterness, anger, pride, people's inability to hear anything beyond the sound of their own voice. I think a reason why these grey social or pastoral issues are so challenging is because unlike heresy, they're not explicit denials of biblical truth. They're typically affirmations of things the Bible simply doesn't mention. You know, it's tricky to deal with people who canonize what isn't canon, who assume that other people should believe what they believe when the Bible is simply agnostic on the issue. What do I mean? Let me give a few examples and I really hope I do this well. You won't. <laughs> 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 All right, let's do this. Mick, do you want to come hold my hand? Um, okay, bank loans. Some Christians think it is wrong to live in debt, period. So they're against bank loans of any other kind, you know, at all. Others of us have no problems drawing down on our current mortgage to buy a caravan. We all have different financial situations and positions and needs. Let's not divide over it. Let's not think less of one another because of these differences. Schooling. Some Christians are strong advocates for homeschooling, others for private Christian schooling or public schooling. I've met very strong advocates for public schooling that are Christians, you know, missional minded Christians. Can you make an explicit biblical case for any one of these? I don't think you can. So whatever your position on education, let's not assume a posture of moral or spiritual superiority over one another. How about TV? I'll tell you right now, the deans do not own a TV. We've got a 4K video projector. Come over and watch a movie if you'd like. <laughs> but hey, I'm not assuming moral superiority over anyone here who doesn't have a 4K video projector. Live and let live, okay? Leave it alone. What about Easter? I know some people who don't get involved in the whole Easter egg thing. I did growing up. I loved it. I knew the redemptive story of Jesus, the life-giving truth of his death and resurrection, and I got chocolate. How about church music? Mm -mm. Some people just won't sing a song if it was written after, you know. I, there you go. <laughs> I was going to say 1900. And hey, if that's your deal, God bless you. Sincerely, I respect that. But let's not divide over it. It's just not worth it. How about medications? Mental health? Vaccinations? Birth control? Some Christians don't believe in taking contraception. They're usually not that hard to pick. They keep our creche busy. And that is a beautiful thing. I'm not having a go, all right? Children are a blessing from the Lord, and some people are more blessed. But let's not lord our convictions over those with their 2.5 children, okay? Of course, we must listen to our conscience on all of these things. But we must also safeguard ourselves against making too much of our conscience and assuming that our convictions are actually on par with the authority of Scripture when they are not. 
And just to be clear, everything I'm saying here, it does not apply to clear biblical teaching. You don't get to sleep around. This is not a personal or cultural issue. It's a biblical issue. You don't get to choose your sex. This is not a personal or cultural issue. This is a biblical issue rooted in the nature of creation. You don't get to cheat on your taxes. That's not a personal choice to get ahead in your game. This is a biblical issue. I could go on. I'll stop it there. There are non-negotiable biblical issues, friends. What we are talking about here are the negotiables, the personal and the cultural issues that are grey. I hope that makes sense. So can I, can I just encourage all of us here, and, and especially myself, right, to try really hard not to make a conviction biblical when it's not explicitly biblical. And therefore, it, it's just not binding on the conscience of all people here. Because when that happens, division arises. Needless division. And I've seen it. <laughs> and it saps the life out of a church. For what? For a poor witness of the God we worship. That's for one. It dismembers the body limb by limb. That's why church leaders, when they discover this stuff, they need to act quick. You hear about it on a Friday, you don't wait till Monday, you get onto it on Saturday. They have to have cheetah-like wisdom. That's quick wisdom, right? Because this stuff kills. And that's what we see here in our text, from growing pains to structural adjustments. Verse 2. The church is growing, a complaint comes forth, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. This is the first time in the book of Acts the word disciple is used. Uh, now, you'll find it hundreds of times across Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's 28 times in the book of Acts, but this is the first occurrence. And the word disciple just means learner, student. Now, look what happens here. The apostles, they make a distinction of priority. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Notice first what they do not say. They do not say that serving tables is unimportant or you know, for lesser people than church leaders. In the Gospel of Luke, same author, Jesus asks his disciples, Luke 22, who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Whew, that is a radical statement. Certainly back then where, you know, servants, having servants was a status of you've made it. It's a remarkable statement. God incarnate was putting himself into the position of a servant this is the christian pattern of greatness by the way it is subversive it upends societal norms out there and i think uh, this is only affirmed here by what we actually do see the apostles saying it is not right that we apostles the gifted those called to serve the church by teaching and prayer that is their particular gifts that they should turn from those gifts and callings, from that service, to go over here to this other need and serve there instead when God has them already over here. You see, both are serving. They're just in different places, right? Why? Because this is the way size culture affects a church. The church is growing. There are growing pains. It's a good problem to have, but it's still a problem. And the church leaders can't be, frankly, expected to do it all. 
So we read here, Brothers, pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And here come the structural adjustments. From its very beginning in Acts chapter 2, the life and ministry of the church orbited around four simple things. Teaching, fellowship, communion, prayer. Teaching, fellowship, communion, prayer. Acts 2.42. But here in Acts 6, a food distribution program is entered into the mix. And so the question now comes, is there a place for programs in a church? Should we, you know, insert programs into this Acts 2.42 list? If you go out and survey uh, many of the church websites out there today, you'll see that the vast majority of them are structured around the different programs and ministries that they offer. Ours is no different, by the way. And, and we followed suit in this regard because it's, frankly, valuable information for people wanting to check out the church. We value so much the programs on offer that they inform our decision as to whether or not we want to come along. But at the same time, we also recognise that there are churches or organisations or whatever that put too much emphasis on their programs, and by that I mean they come at the expense of their people. That's why some people are, you know, in reaction to that, they're quite averse to so-called organised religion. You know, if the Spirit's at work in something, then let's keep our programs and our opinions out of it and just let the Holy Spirit flame do its thing. So what's the balance here? Is there a place for programs in the church? I think there are a couple of different levels that we can answer this. The first level is the highest level. It's given in the nature and action of God himself. Creation is an orderly whole. Everything has its place and its purpose under God. Indeed, that's why the Apostle Paul described sin in Romans 1 as a disordering of the created realm. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, and as in all the creations, and as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. And that's a segue to this other level from the nature and action of God himself to the descriptions of the church body itself as a body, as an organism. Bodies are living organisms. You know, a disorganized organism is what we call a mutation. It's cancerous. It kills. And there's a reason why organism and organization sound the same. Uh, etymologically, they have a common root in this concept of organ, which is, or just means a systematic arrangement of some kind. Organisms, it's a systematic arrangement of organ, organs that exhibit life. Organization, it's the arranging of those things in a particular system or entity. You could have that in like an institution or a corporation and so on. In other words, it's not either organism or organization. That's the point here. You don't get an organism like the church without some measure of organization, okay? Christ is the head after all. And that's, uh, I think, why Paul is so strong in his language when you look at what he has to say about the orderliness of church life. It is all through the New Testament. But back to our text. What is the balance here? What is the place of programs in the local church? Well, again, it's not either preaching the word or serving on tables. It's both. What God joins together, let us not separate. When you canvass the scriptures, it's nearly impossible to separate uh, the teaching of the word from practice and behavior like serving on tables. Human beings, we're integrated wholes. We sense what we know, we know what we sense, we do what we think because we think about what it is that we do. Deeds are a demonstration of words. 
practice of profession, walk of talk. By the way, that's why it's terrifying to preach here because <laughs> I better be stepping in what I'm saying and if I don't, you guys will be the first ones to tell me. Like our unity, our generosity bears witness to the God we worship. Even the Roman Emperor Julian, who hated Christianity, could not deny that there was a peculiar generosity about the Christian people that was strangely attractive. Church ministries, food distribution programs, kids ministries, men's, women's, outreach, administration, music, sound desk, dialing, admin, whatever it is, these all flow out of the foundations we read about here in Acts 2.42 of teaching, fellowship, communion, prayer. That means we don't run programs for their own sake. We run them as a means to a greater end. So that whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever it is that we do, we do it all to the glory of God. You see, this unity in the end of God's glory is what enables us to overcome our Hellenic and our Hebraic, our Easter celebrating and non-Easter celebrating differences. Because we're recognizing that there is something bigger than what divides us, and that is what unites us, namely God. And that is why we bear witness to the world when we are united, because we are testifying to the fact that there is something bigger going on here than just ourselves. And by the way, who is that? J-E-S-U-S. Yes. yes. <laughs> I was going to do it, but thank you. We're all different, but there's something bigger going on here, folks. Devotion to the kingdom of God motivates a sacrificial mind of Christ, which looks to the interests of others more than our own. Philippians 2. Have that mind. You can. You can. Because remember, you're involved in something more. But now another question might come. Okay, great. I've bought in. Programs have a place in church life. It's part of structural organization. Got it. Now how do I get involved? Look here again at our text. Growing pains brings a problem of dissent, verse 1. So the apostles give some structural adjustment to address those growing pains, 2 to 4. Now look here at verse 5 and 6. What they said about appointing others pleased the whole gathering. That's the whole church. And so they chose now these men and they set before them, they set them before the apostles and they prayed for them and they laid their hands on them. How do you get involved in a church like Calvary Chapel, Newcastle? I want to suggest at least three principles. There's a lot more to say, but just at least these three principles, principles from this text as we've read it. First, have some sort of awareness of your gifts and your calling. The apostles knew their gifts and their calling to preach the word and to pray. That's why they had the power to say no. <laughs> That's why they delegated the service of waiting on tables to others. Saying no is a spiritual thing, friends. <laughs> so what's your gift? What's your sense of a calling? Do you know? Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. So you have one, 1 Peter 4, 10. But what is that? I get it. That's where the difficulty comes in. Well, in his book, The 17 Indisputable Laws of Teamwork, John Maxwell gives something of a schema here. He introduces it with this statement. What happens to a team when one or more of its members constantly play out of position? First, morale erodes because the team isn't playing up to its capacity. Then people become resentful. The people working in an area of weakness resent that their best is untapped. 
And other people on the team who know that they could better fill a mismatched position on the team resent that their skills have been overlooked. Before long, people become unwilling to work as a team that everyone's confidence begins to erode and the situation just keeps getting worse. So in response to this idea, Maxwell goes on to, to say that a team's dynamic, um, it changes according to the placement of people. And he offers five points by way of a schema that I think can be helpful as you try and think about what it is that you may or may not be called to. Five things. First, and he says this generically, you could apply this to business, to your home, to whatever. I'm going to apply it now to the, the nature of at least Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. First, the wrong person in the wrong place equals regression. In other words, if you're serving in a ministry role here at church that does not align with your gifts and your time and your talents and your abilities or your passions, it can lead to a decline or a regression in the effectiveness and growth of that ministry or program. Probably a marker that you shouldn't be there. Second, the wrong person in the right place equals frustration. If you're placed in a ministry role that is a good fit for the needs of the church, but you lack the necessary skills or passion or spiritual gifting for that ministry, then it can result in real frustration for you and the church. Probably an indicator that you shouldn't be there. Third, the right person in the wrong place equals confusion. Maybe you are well suited for a specific ministry role at this church. But if you find yourself in the wrong area that doesn't align with your giftings and callings, well, again, that can be confusing, disorienting. Fourth, the right person in the right place equals progression. But when you find yourself serving in a role at this church that does align with your gifts and your time and your talents and your passions, like a hand in the glove, it progresses the growth of that ministry and therefore the church as a whole and you're better off for it. Maxwell offers a fifth one as well. The right people, plural, in the right places, plural, equal multiplication. In other words, when we're all doing this together as a team of individuals serving in ministry roles that align with our respective gifts and callings, it leads to overall church growth because each person is contributing uh, and, and being effective in their respective roles you know, as the arms and the legs and the knees and the shoulders of this body that's all under the head of Christ. We become a really powerful mo momentum in this movement as we go towards the end of the earth. I think that scheme is quite helpful. It helps us to figure out at least what to say yes to and what to say no to. If you can't learn to say no, and I'm saying this from personal experience, you're going to end up like David wearing Saul's armour. Remember that story? Saul said to David, put on my armour, and David was like, nah, this is not going to work. I'm not that guy. I'm the guy with the sling. All right, take it off. So he took it off, and he went out there, and he won. Imagine if David went out in Saul's armour. Couldn't move. He would have been taken down in a second. Don't try and be someone you're not. Know your calling. A second thing here is grow up. <laughs> what we learn from our text here is that we need to grow up. Verse 3, Pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. It's, it's not enough to just be gifted in something. There are tons of very gifted people who have not grown up. Church ministry requires 
that giftedness be wed with spiritual maturity. And that's why you may have somebody that's more gifted in, I don't know, music ministry, but their maturity is not there. And so you have somebody who's less gifted in music ministry, but their maturity is there, so they're serving. That makes sense? Our lives should be characterized as disciples, always learning, never content with our level of knowledge or our labors, but always seeking to improve and learn and grow. So ask yourself, how are you a student? Who are the people that you want to learn from and listen to and get close to and be discipled by? And who are those that want to get close to you as you shepherd and mentor them? And the wisdom here, it's, it's, wisdom simply means applying what you know. How do you get it? Do you learn it? Do you earn it? James 1, if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Let him ask in faith. I think every leader in every, uh, or, you know, it could be church, could be business, could be the home, wherever you are as a leader, I think every one of you should memorize 1 Corinthians 4.2. It is required, not recommended, not advised. It is required of leaders that they be found faithful. That's where it's at. Faithfulness to the finish. Not giving up until it's done. When I was in high school, what I admired most, what was impressionable upon me, was athletic ability and big muscles. <laughs> then after uni, it was, it was getting a job, it was getting some postgrad study, going to Bible college while I was working. It became all about intellectual accomplishment. What I had most was, you know, cognitive ability. And these things, you know, come and go. You'll probably see me working out for like a month. But the older I get, you know what I admire the most? It's not abs. What I admire most is people who are faithful, who let their yes be yes and their no be no. Husbands who are faithful to their wives. Mothers who are faithful in raising godly children. Ministers who are faithful to this pulpit and to the people that they shepherd. It's, it's so cool to look at this passage, by the way, and think about the fact that it is the apostles themselves who are giving this instruction. What was the last time they had a food distribution problem? You know, Feeding of the 5,000. Luke 9. Thousands of people are gathering around to listen to Jesus to speak on the hillside. The hours were ticking by. People were getting hangry. What did the apostles say? This is a quote. Send the crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and the countryside to find lodging and get provisions, end quote. <laughs> How's that? Hey, we have a problem with hungry people. Send them away. <laughs> Imagine if you go up to an elder here and say, hey, there's a problem with the person over here. Do you want to come? I've got a for you. Send them away. Send them away. Let them deal with it. You know, when we look at Luke chapter 9, Jesus wasn't asking the apostles to, to fix the problem. He was asking them to be faithful in the service he was about to give them in distributing the food he was about to provide for them. 
no more than five loaves and two fish that fed thousands. By Acts 6, the apostles have grown up in their faith. They don't send the complainers away. They make a structural adjustment to see the problem addressed. Isn't that just a neat demonstration of growth, right? Personal growth. Look how far they've come. May it be the same with us. The third thing here is be recognized by your community. This is a third way you can be involved in ministry programs. We read here in verse 5 that the selection of these seven pleased the whole gathering. And so verse 6, they were set before the apostles and they prayed and they laid hands on them. So here's a question for you. If a ministry opportunity pops up here at CCN that aligns with your gifts and your callings and your maturity, would people think, ah, I know just the person for that ministry and your name came to mind? Are you known by this community here at church? In other words, are you invested in this community here such that if you were to go into a role of ministry, people would be pleased with your appointment? Well, there are at least three different considerations for you as you think about how you can get plugged in here at church. Know your gifts and callings, grow up, never cease to be a student, and be someone who is recognised by your church community through fellowship. Growing pains, structural adjustments, finally this afternoon, bodybuilding, and this is short and sweet. The church is growing, a complaint arises, people are appointed to deal with the problem. The church is pleased, so finally we read here, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You want to grow a church? This is how it's done. The math of a maturing church But in case there's any confusion here, let me just make this footnote short one. (laughs) Acts 6 is, yes, talking about numerical growth, quantified growth in a church context. More people. But if we've learned anything from today's math lesson, it's that the number of people at a church is absolutely not a measure of their maturity or their growth in the fuller sense of that term. If anything, more people at a church just provides more opportunities for faithfulness because there's so many more problems that come along. (laughs) That's because of size culture, remember? But church bodybuilding, it's not fundamentally about numerical growth. It's not about getting more Christians, bigger numbers of Christians. It's about getting bigger Christians, individual. This is quality over quantity, fundamentally. It's about getting people, as we read here in verse 7, who are obedient to the faith. And so read this now, it just sums it all up from Ephesians 4. The Lord gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, disciples, you and me, for the work of the ministry, from teaching the word to serving on tables, for building up the body of Christ, that's the church, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, not a thousand people, to the measure and the statue of the fullness of Christ, not a sports stadium, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, that is in word and deed, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. There it is. He is the measure of growth from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint, every arm, ankle, him, hip bone, kidney, pancreas, whoever you are, whatever you do, however you contribute to the body with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that builds itself up in love. Amen, Paul. Amen, church. That is it. Growing pains, structural adjustments, bodybuilding, 
biblical style. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for just the clarity of your word as it's been preserved for us in these pages. This testimony of men and women who have gone before um, that lay a storyline for us to not only learn from but also relate to. Father, I thank you for the power of your word. Uh, We thank you for the power of the gospel that it contains. Uh, I, I love being a part of an ordinary church Uh, just simple and ordinary, just genuine and real and authentic, just lovers of Jesus. Thank you for all that you've done in our church. Thank you for blessing our church in such incredible ways, for providing for us even these last 12 months um, through the growing pains, the structural adjustments, and to build us up into a stronger body than we've ever been. Father, my prayer today is that no obstacles, whether inside of the church or outside of the church, and they will come, will hinder the word of God being preached at Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. And I ask, Father, that that same power that brought thousands into the church in Acts will do the same here and around the world. I don't care if it's our church. I just pray that it is your church, the church. And to that end, Father, I I just ask that we would always be about the main things here at church, at Calvary the word, fellowship, communion, and prayer. And may all of our ministries and our programs and our actions and our reactions be built uh, around those apostolic foundations for your word does not return void. Father, may we individually as members of this body with all of our gifts and idiosyncrasies and quirks, may we always be students, never masters, always disciples of you, the teacher. Lord, show us where we can serve. Make that clear to us and give us a sense of peace in that service. Help us to know where we can plug in. Help us to discern the gifts and the callings that you've placed in our lives that we may, we may be fulfilled in going about your business, whether that be here at church or whether that's at home or at work or at school or wherever the place and space is that you have us. And as we do that, Father, I just now pray that you would keep us faithful to the finish full of joy because the road is narrow and Lord I can't wait to hear those words well done and may that always be the compass the north that we are awaiting to hear from your lips the author and perfecter of our faith who's gone before may we always look to you Amen Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel Newcastle If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.